0: Support for this podcast comes from Dandelion Energy. Dandelion is the leading home geothermal company. Homeowners who make the switch to geothermal heating save on average $2,250 per year. That money is sitting underneath the ground under your house. Visit dandelionenergy.com slash GTM to see if your home qualifies. Support also comes from Wonder Capital. Wonder has financed well over 100 megawatts of small commercial solar projects, and it is now the leading commercial solar financier according to Green Tech Media. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next community solar or commercial solar project, head over to wondercapital.com/GTM. From Greentech Media, this is the Energy Gang. Weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. This week, the battery storage era of the electric grid is dawning. I'm looking at a bar chart here of energy storage activity in the U.S. And from 2012 to 2017, it plods along well under half a gigawatt. 2018 was a solid year, up 44%. And then, boom, this year it doubles. And then it triples in 2020. We are going to look at what is causing these big leaps for batteries in the US. Then, more and more farmers are in crisis, so more and more of them are putting solar on their land. That's giving them new sources of revenue, but many fear it could take prime croplands out of commission. We'll ask how to do it right. And finally, what is going on over there at Tesla? The stores are closing. Nope, actually, they're staying open. We're lowering the cost of EVs. Ah, never mind, we're raising our prices. Model 3 volume is our priority. Nope. Actually, here's a teaser for the Model Y. We will try to make sense of it all. My co-hosts have been diligently preparing and scribbling notes, trying to make sense of the world this week. Catherine Hamilton is in Washington, D.C. She is the chair of 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine.
1: Hi. I just got back from being at Sarah Week in Houston last night.
0: Remind our listeners what Sarah Week is. It's like the Super Bowl of energy, right?
1: It for oil and gas for sure, um, but they now have a huge piece that keeps growing on innovation. So it's gotten pretty interesting. There are lots of people
0: who go to that, and it's a super nice conference. Were they talking about batteries there?
1: Yes, they were.
0: Wow, I'll ask you about that in our first topic then. Jigger Shot is in Bethesda, Maryland. You're in Maryland this week, right, Jigger? I am. Okay, not some super secret location that you tell me right before I press record. (laughs) He is the president of Generate Capital.
2: You're still at Generate Capital, right? You haven't done anything. Well, you know, it's it's funny because I actually have, I was, there was a Twitter feed around how many jobs people had had. And people are like, I've had 17 jobs. I've had 18 jobs. And I'm like, I've had like three jobs.
1: I know. I'm the same way. I'm like a serial monogamist with my (laughs) career. And and there's so many people who have had a zillion jobs. I used to think that was a bad thing, but now I'm realizing it's probably good for experience. Well, that's why we chose you
0: both for the podcast as co-hosts so that you wouldn't run away and just do it for six months and and leave. (laughs) We're going on six years here.
1: Definitely a long marriage.
0: Well- I will see both of you in just three short weeks because on April 4th, we are going to do a live show at the MIT Energy Conference in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The big theme of that event is what will power grids look like in 2040? That is a lot to tackle. We are still deciding exactly what we're going to cover, but I hope you can come join us. Tickets are available at MITEnergyConference.org and you Our wonderful listeners get a discount if you use the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, no spaces, ENERGYGANG at checkout. You're going to get 10% off, and uh, we really hope to see you there. We love our live shows. We don't do a ton of them just because of scheduling, but uh, the MIT Energy Conference is a great event, and, and I know we have a lot of fans here in the Northeast, so please come check it out. The numbers for America's energy storage activity are out And they show 44% growth last year, according to our fine storage team at Wood Mackenzie and the folks at the Energy Storage Association. They also show a doubling and then a tripling of storage to come, making batteries an important part of utility planning in pretty much every region of the country. Meanwhile, we've got some new rules in the works from federal energy regulators that will push grid operators to treat storage like any other resource in regional markets. The gun is about to go off. So where is growth happening and what does it mean for grid planning? Let's start first with a stat that jumped out from the report, the 2018 Energy Storage Monitor. Catherine, what do you have?
1: I guess we all knew that the industry was growing at a rapid rate, but the fact that the forecast had to go up by 9% from the last quarter was pretty astounding. So even the forecasters did not know how fast it was growing.
0: Yeah, incredible. So it caught you by surprise and you're like our storage expert, so it seems like it's catching everybody by surprise.
1: Yeah, to have a double from last year, a double this year, and triple in 2020, it, it'll be really interesting to see where it goes from there.
0: Jigger, what stat jumped out for you, and what does it tell you about where storage is headed?
2: Well, what was interesting to me was that um, I think it said that that behind-the-meter storage exceeded uh, front-of-the-meter storage. It was 53% behind-the-meter and... 47% in front of the meter, which I would have thought in front of the meter would have been much larger just because you have these huge batteries that AES and others are putting in. But um, but yeah, the fact that they were relatively balanced means that the solar plus storage offerings and some of the other behind-the-meter offerings are really taking off in ways that I hadn't really fully appreciated. So you're financing these behind-the-meter projects, some of them anyway.
0: Are you more interested in the non-residential commercial behind the meter stuff, or is the residential stuff attractive to you?
2: Well, in general, we have done more of the commercial stuff just because the market is a little more sane there. Whereas in the residential area, uh, customers are really paying for the storage, not unlike myself and my battery storage, um, because they want to. So it's not really an economic decision as much as it's a resiliency decision. So it's like, well, I would have paid for a diesel generator in the backyard and instead I'm getting battery storage.
1: And for C&I customers, this is, this is a proposition where you lower your demand costs, which can often be most of your bill. And it's it's an economic decision that does not depend on being able to participate in any
0: kind of grid activities. It's worth putting some punctuation on both of these points because When we talk about behind-the-meter storage, we are talking mostly about commercial projects at this point for the reasons you both outlined. Residential storage at this point is still really small. We're seeing a lot of very interesting utility pilots and Sunrun, for example, just won a major contract to aggregate solar and storage for capacity services in New England, but these are still pretty rare, and most of the the behind the meter stuff we're seeing is in non-residential commercial applications. So my statistic is $4.7 billion, and that is how much the storage market will be worth in 2024. That's five times what it was worth this year. And the market itself, in terms of capacity deployments, is going to be six times bigger, uh, with over 40% of those deployments being behind the meter. And again, behind the meter, mostly commercial. Um, You know, behind the meter is actually going to account for more than half of the market value. So it's quite interesting to see the distributed nature of a lot of these batteries going forward as growth explodes. Yeah.
1: And Stephen, another number that I saw in the Energy Storage Association's press release, and then I reached out to Kelly Speaks-Bachman about it because I didn't see it in the report, were the jobs numbers. And she said that actually came from a recently released U.S. Energy and Employment Report. And the jobs in storage have increased 18% in 2018. That is a higher rate than any other energy sector.
0: And that's changing like the type of people who are going to these energy storage conferences, which I think is a really interesting indicator of how the industry is evolving. Um, it used to be a lot of just battery storage technology geeks, people who are experimenting. And now, like you saw in solar around 2007, 2008, you see a lot of the suits coming in, big companies coming in. For on project development and people announcing tons and tons of new projects. And then, Catherine, you mentioned at Sarah Week, this big fossil fuel conference that everyone goes to, they're talking about batteries in a serious way now. Um, so, actually, how is that bleeding into a big conference like Sarah? I'm curious.
1: Yeah, they're talking about it in a lot of ways. Part of which is that a lot of the majors are investing in new technology. A lot of them are looking at storage to solve a lot of issues that they have, operational issues and are, you know, like ABB for example taking a, you know, big position on storage and th- so integral to all of these panels on the future of, you know, pipelines are panels on energy storage on resourcing. You know, it's it's quite a large part of
0: the conference. Jigger is, um, is this what business as usual looks like in storage now? Like, are we headed toward a period of just continued growth where we see a doubling every year? Obviously, projections are hard, but at least through 2024, we're going to see doublings or near
2: doublings. Is this what growth is going to look like? Yeah, well, I mean, this is what making up for lost time looks like. I mean, this is the overall thesis around battery storage has been that electricity is the largest commodity supply chain in the world that doesn't feature storage, right? Even when you talk about oil and gas from Sarah Week, they have fuel tanks and ways of storing oil all along the supply chain, right? We have huge caverns that store natural gas. But in the electricity space, everyone is expected to ramp up and down natural gas peaker plants to meet small fluctuations between supply and demand, I think people have realized that it's literally a hundred times easier just to have storage. And, you know, and I think people are just making up for lost time. Right. So
0: hypergrowth is really good, but it can also be detrimental to Companies to planning. It's 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 difficult to operate a business in a hyper growth environment. Sometimes, Jigger, what are the pitfalls for companies we should be keeping an eye out for?
2: Well, in general, the the big pitfall is that is that things change, right? So, if you were locked into a certain standard and a certain manufacturer, and then that manufacturer is short on batteries, like you know, we did have some product shortages in twenty eighteen, it could dramatically affect your business. Separately, I think there's huge amounts of service issues and other issues on that side, right? So, so if you pick the wrong supplier and they don't have really good customer service, then you may end up spending a ton of time with your existing clients um, fixing systems that you installed in previous years.
1: There are also a lot of conversations going on, including one at Sarah Week about resources. So, where are we getting cobalt? You know, how are these batteries built, and for the
0: duration, where are we going to source all these materials? Okay, well, uh, there are business challenges, supply challenges. What about the policy challenges? We are entering a whole new world with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission establishing two new rules that could make storage a big player in regional markets. Uh, We've talked about them extensively on the show, but we do have a lot of new listeners who may not be as familiar with them. So, Catherine, as those rules get developed, uh, what are they and what are the potential pitfalls for companies as they look to how these rules are formed?
1: Right. So the big one for storage was Order 841, which came out last year, last February. And it basically says the storage must be able to participate in any market out there, either capacity, energy, ancillary services markets, and that the independent system operators have to develop rules to allow them to be able to participate if they technically can. So now all of the ISOs are putting together all of their rules and their processes um, for approval in 2019 to Im- start implementing in 2020. So what 841 did was it really goosed the market, got attention on energy storage. Um, there was a realization that FERC was paying attention, that they wanted to open up the markets. And the changes were helpful, but fairly modest. So there are still some pretty big structural issues for new entrants to the market. It does help those who are already in the market, But there's still some issues about capacity valuation, about penalty structures, about not being able to export um, if you're a behind-the-meter resource, except in ISO New England, as we saw with the Sunrun contract. Um, So there's still a lot of issues out there that need to be resolved before everyone can really participate, including behind the meter.
0: So the, the takeaway is, like, if you're an energy storage business or involved in the business in any way, stay active on this front.
1: Exactly. And then um, Order 845, which came out in 2018 also, really clarified that you were allowed to interconnect at not necessarily the full nameplate capacity um, of the battery. So often, an uh, energy storage facility will be co-located with a renewable energy facility, but not be there just to support that facility. It could be providing grid services, providing transmission services. And um, this would really help on that front, on interconnection. Interconnection has always been an extremely expensive, extremely gnarly issue. And so that did clarify.
0: Meanwhile, in specific utility territories, storage is starting to play a pretty big role in long-term utility planning. And this mirrors a trend we saw starting a couple years ago when utilities released their integrated resource plans. And we saw solar dominating planned capacity additions. Utilities are just looking at solar and saying, if we're only judging this stuff based on cost, solar is going to dominate almost every single time. And now what you've seen are large utilities announce huge procurements for energy storage, um, some to offset planned natural gas plants, like in APS, where that utility got slapped on the wrist for uh, putting too much natural gas in its resource plans. And so it just recently came out with a massive target for storage, 850 megawatts of storage by 2025. This APS announcement, what does this reflect when it comes to utility planning? Catherine?
1: I think a couple things. One is that storage is coming in cheaper, storage plus solar is coming in cheaper than natural gas in a lot of situations, and that was the case, you know, in with APS. And the other piece is that it allows utilities to be able to monetize another asset. So if you look at the APS storage plan of the 850 megawatts, only 150 will be third-party tenders.
2: I think APS is eating an unhealthy amount of bacon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. According to Catherine, energy
0: storage is the bacon of the electric grid. And I know you both are vegetarians, so we modified that and we, we call it the kale of the electric grid. So it depends on um, whether APS
2: is a meat-eating utility, and I believe it is. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but the the sad thing about it is that APS it, it, on its website still only has as its goal 15% renewable energy by 2025, at a time when the New Mexico State Senate is passing 100% clean energy. So what does that tell you? Well, I mean, in general, I think that APS continues to struggle with trying to figure out how to decarbonize its grid, right? And so I think storage is hugely valuable, and particularly in a place like Arizona, where They need no peaker plants, basically, in the wintertime. And they need all peaker plants all the time in the summertime because of their unbearable heat. Um, Moving to battery storage is really smart. I also think that coupling it with solar, to Catherine's point around the ITC, makes sense because they want to try to get the storage as cheap as possible. And coupling it with solar right now is the best way to get uh, the lowest possible cost per megawatt hour for storage. But it's just one of those things where... I want to love APS, I really do, but I honestly can't trust them as far as I can throw them. Yeah, but you don't need to love APS. That's not really what I'm getting at. It's like,
0: this is a utility that a lot of people are skeptical of. And the fact that they're procuring this much energy storage is a pretty interesting sign. So to me, the fact that you you don't have a lot of trust in a utility like this is actually kind of making my point that like, Pretty much any utility is now looking at storage and saying, we
2: need a lot of this.
1: And they're, so they're not doing it to be good. They're just doing it to solve issues on their grid.
2: Yeah, but the challenge I have, and I had the same challenge with smart meters you know, 10 years ago, is that I think all of us should be very skeptical around how technology is deployed because utilities really only have one up- obligation, which is to rate base as much as possible so their shareholders make more money. And the fact that storage is really sexy right now and allows APS to do a lot of this is great, and I appreciate that. But I want to make sure that APS is also doing the right thing by their ratepayers, which is figuring out a way to decarbonize their grid so that they reduce health impacts and stabilize electricity prices going forward. So are we entering the storage era, guys? Oh, I think we've been in the
0: storage era.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say that, too. We've been here, Stephen. Just embrace it. Own it.
2: (laughs) Welcome to the storage party. (laughs) Yes, indeed.
0: (laughs) The party is really heating up. Well, coming up, the benefits and drawbacks of solar on farmland and the good, bad, and ugly over at Tesla. First, Support for our podcast comes from Dandelion Energy, the leading home geothermal energy. Dandelion uses cutting-edge geothermal technology to harness the Earth's warm temperature to safely and reliably heat your home. Without relying on expensive, outdated, and dangerous heating fuels, homeowners can save over $2,000 per year on average. Visit dandelionenergy.com gtm to see if your home qualifies for geothermal heating. We're also brought to you by Wonder Capital. Do you have a community solar project that needs financing? Do you have a solar storage project that needs financing? Or just a plain old commercial solar project that's complicated? Wonder can do it all, and it just launched a progressive new community solar offering dedicated to financing projects in ways that other lenders can't. It gets rid of hefty termination penalties, long-term contracts, and subscriber FICO scores, making it easier for you and the end customer. Head on over to wondercapital.com GTM to submit your solar projects today. It is a really brutal year for farmers. Corn and soybean prices are way down, forcing higher-than-average number of bankruptcies for farming operations this year. Consequently, a lot more farmers are eyeing solar. Wind has long been an important source of revenue for farmers, but solar is becoming more attractive as project development blossoms in the Midwest and Southeast. Solar offers more complications than wind, though. You can grow crops around wind turbines. A multi-megawatt solar farm blanketing a field makes it harder to grow crops, and it's raising concerns that valuable farmland will be taken out of commission for decades. So, how do we do this correctly? Jigger, the uh, the Post, the Washington Post just published a detailed story on what's happening in your home state of Illinois. Summarize the activity there on farmlands and why it's sometimes controversial.
2: Well, I think for those folks who don't follow, you know, the farm uh, income. Uh, closely. I was looking at the University of Illinois data, uh, and what it shows is that, in fact, farmers made basically $0 per acre uh, in 2016. And so uh, the heyday was sort of back in 2008, 2009, where they were making $300,000 per farm, which was, you know, something on the order of fifteen to $1,800 an acre. But, you know, today they're making almost zero, right? And so the amount of money that it takes to really, you know, do all this stuff is is, is difficult to sustain. And so you've got crop insurance and you've got other programs from the USDA. But you can imagine being a farmer, working really hard and figuring out how to make money just off of government programs and largesse is not something that farmers actually relish doing. And so there is like, there's this push on the farmer's side to figure out what to do with their land, right? Because they don't want to just sell it and move on but they have bills to pay. They have debts that they owe on this land. And, you know, folks actually do come around and ask to get paid back. And so there's that on the one hand. On the other hand, you've got the solar and wind companies saying, we really need access to land that's close to interconnection points. And a lot of farmland fits in that category. And the solar guys are willing to pay a fixed amount of money for the next 20 years. So you don't have to worry about planting and fertilizing and all the other pieces, you know, maintaining equipment. You can actually just get paid for your land year in and year out for 20 years. Right, so the benefit is clear, but like, why why are people pushing back on this? Well, there's a lot of people who glorify farming, right? I mean, as someone who grew up in a farm town, I sort of know how bad it is and how hard it is, right? And how industrial it's becoming, etc. But, you know, like- there's a lot of folks out there that use farmers like they use coal miners, right? They're like some sort of nostalgic period throwback thing. And, you know, in fact, most farmers are not actually growing food for you and I to eat. They're growing feed for animals, right? And so it doesn't really matter, per se, whether or not they grow that feed. And from my perspective, competition is good. If you're a real capitalist, right? If You're setting up a system where farmers can't make money, and the solar and wind industry are able to actually help farmers make more money, particularly off of marginal land, because we're obviously going to pay less for marginal land than we're going to pay for prime farmland, then what's the harm? And if corn and soybean prices go up a little bit because of that, that's awesome, because that means the market's actually working.
1: So farm debt right now is at four hundred and nine billion dollars. As Jigger says, this is this is not a great money making venture right now. Um, Topsoil losses are like two to five tons of acre a year, and then for all row crops, twenty to fifty tons per acre per year because of all these intense storms. So it's not getting any better as we go. And yet for solar, if you are able to monetize that you know, by 2030, there could be between $603 billion in lease payments from solar on these on these farmlands.
2: And it's not just corn and soybeans, which is what everyone's obsessed with right now. But in Florida, what NextEra is doing is taking out all of these orange groves, which have lost their ability to grow oranges, right? I mean, they orange groves have absolutely suffered from climate change. And the average A farmer that actually grows oranges has seen their income decline by over 70%. And so Nextera is doing a lot of these orange grove owners a favor and putting in five megawatt solar farms in parts of their land because um, it's way more profitable than growing oranges.
1: Yes. And if you do it right, if you make it as a habitat or a regenerative ag, like mounting them at 36 inches where you allow for pollination, it actually makes your crop grow much better. It protects the ecosystem. You have no mowing. You have bees, better water quality, birds, nutrient management, so you don't have to put down um, so much fertilizer. For, For fruits, vegetables, honey, that is really the way to go to be more profitable.
0: Gang, 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 gang. Let's not just wave this off, though. I mean, the criticism to me seems fair when you look at the multi-decade time frame that these projects are going to be around. And if you're, you're looking at a world where we're going to have 10 billion people and the US, United States Midwest has some of the most uh, productive cropland in the world – Yes, a lot of that, uh, a lot of those crops are going to feed animals. Uh, you know, and a lot of those animals are going to feed people. But that, you know, that cropland can be used for a lot of different things. And if we're taking that that really nice land out of commission, or mostly out of commission, for thirty years or longer, in a world that has to feed ten billion people, I think that worries a lot of people. Uh, if it happens in a at a very large scale.
1: Well, first of all, the amount of acres that are needed is tiny compared to the number of acres for farmland. So it's not like you're taking all your farmland out of commission. You're actually making... That farmland, if you design it correctly, more productive where you put solar. And if you're careful about your design, as Rob Davis from Fresh Energy said, if we're not building things that are beautiful, we're hiding things that are ugly. So like, make sure that this is really helpful to the land and makes it more productive. The other issue is the commodity crops. The last thing that they want is to have the monarch butterfly put on the endangered species list because then they really do have to adapt all their practices, even though they're not necessarily pollination crops, it still will impact them monetarily. And so they want to make sure that for specialty crops, which are fruits and vegetables, um, that those are pollinator friendly. And entomologists care about this. States all over, red and blue states everywhere, the entomologists are saying, we really need to do something. And if we design it correctly, then it will prevent us from taking farmland out of commission. In fact, it will make our farmland more productive.
2: So just to to put this in perspective, um, we grow about 89 million acres of corn per year. The amount of land that the USDA pays farmers to keep fallow and not grow anything on it is around 23 million acres a year. And the amount of acreage we're talking about the solar industry using forever, right? I mean, not like just now, but just forever, is something less than 10 million acres. And almost all of that is going to come from fallow land, which is not currently being planted. So this is land, like, for instance, every farmland area has, like, a corner that's always flooded when it rains, or always has issues near the fence line or something like that right and that is the part that the solar industry is renting it's not the prime farmland it's the stuff on the edges it's the stuff that isn't making as much money for the farmer and so we're not talking about about a lot of farmland but part of what I want to do here is, look, I get the arguments for the people who are nostalgic about, you know, the days when we, uh, you know, we all farmed and, you know, didn't have modern electricity and couldn't actually get places because we didn't have cars. I get that, right? People love those days, right? When people died at the age of three from, you know, rare diseases. And it was fantastic, right? But, but where we are today is so little, so few people are employed by the industry, right? So few people. Almost all of farming is mechanized, right? And, and the other challenge I have personally is that it, 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 it wouldn't be so bad for people who eat meat to have to actually pay a market price for that meat. The fact that we have set aside 89 million acres of our land to subsidize people's ability to eat ground chuck, I'm okay with making them pay A market price for ground chuck. Call me a capitalist, but I actually believe in capitalism.
0: (laughs) I don't disagree with that sentiment actually at all. And those those are very helpful figures when thinking about the totality of solar development um, on many of these lands. So when the Washington Post comes out with an argument like this, do you think it's overblown? Are they taking a couple of skeptical voices and making it seem like
2: it's a much bigger issue? Or is it a real local controversial issue? Oh, it's not a real local controversial issue. As someone who is going through this right now with my friends in Illinois, people are begging solar developers to come and give them an offer for their land. This is not something where people are arguing about it. There aren't a bunch of farmers in Illinois saying, oh my God, like I don't want to see this happening. There might be ex-farmers who've already sold their land and moved on who are saying, gosh, I wish that we were back in the 1980s, but there there are no farmers right now who are currently making $0 per acre net of their costs on growing corn and soybeans that are saying, I think that I should be able to make $0 forever and solar should not be able to use my land.
1: So another constituency that's very upset about uh, the way farms are being managed now is that pheasant hunters, which number in the tens of thousands, um, are upset that 10 million acres were lost to crops over the last 20 years. So they're very interested in making sure that solar and other agriculture is is designed in a very pollinator-friendly way and in a way that allows for grasslands because they care about their hunting. So there is a way to manage this with public policy. Um, Illinois just passed unanimously in the legislature a Pollinator-Friendly Solar Act, which really just is an incremental approach, but a real approach that allows 1% to 3% change in seed mix that has certain design parameters that are based on a voluntary checklist that as you go out to design your solar facility, you follow this checklist. And to tell you that this is real, Excel Energy is requiring pollinator-friendly solar standards for every new solar installation. So this is becoming a real thing. It's not controversial, and in fact, it's very well supported in legislatures. And I think this will. This is a great model that can move beyond Illinois uh, to other states, and then really, really to a national standard.
2: The other thing I would say is that I think that this is really – an opportunity to talk about how farmers can be part of a Green New Deal. Um, You know, I think that whether it's using their land for renewable energy or whether it's actually figuring out a way to, to put more carbon back into their soils, where, you know, the USDA... Uh, the latest bill added twenty million dollars for studying regenerative farming, and I think you're seeing a lot of movement in that area. And I think when you actually do get to a point where you have a carbon price or some other support program out of the USDA, I, I think one of the best ways to sequester carbon is going to be to pay farmers to do it. And I, I just think that you know being nostalgic around the days of years past, I just isn't isn't I think helpful around helping farmers i think it's just a way to get a cheap clickbait headline for the washington post
0: i i i don't think it's clickbait i think it was a well-reported story but i gotta say i came into this pretty skeptical and you both convinced me uh you, you turned me around on this one i think the only thing i'm worried about now is those pheasant hunters accidentally shooting out an inverter container
1: <laughs> well, they don't fly. They don't fly, so don't worry.
2: You'd be surprised at how accurate most uh pheasant hunters are. I think it's uh just Dick Cheney that hits his partners in the face.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, let's uh let's finish with a look at Tesla. We haven't talked about Tesla in a little while, so we're not going to account for everything you know before we started this show i had to furiously google to see if i missed anything on the tesla front or see if elon tweeted anything of course the model y is going to get teased by musk tonight the the real focus say investors should be getting to that $35,000 model 3 at high volumes of course, you know the Model Y is a different segment, and Americans still love their SUV crossovers. So there are a lot of people who think it yes, this is the right time. Meanwhile, Musk is still in a very public and silly battle with federal securities regulators. The company's stock is down, I think, fourteen percent this year uh, after a series of confusing decisions, most notably Musk's recent decision to shut down all retail stores and then abruptly reverse that decision. And also a decision to raise prices on its cars, not the Model 3, but its other models. Before we get into this discussion, um, if you do want to deep dive into the history and future of Tesla Energy, the battery and solar business, we did talk extensively about that on the interchange this week. So you can find the link to that show in in the notes there. But I want to bring this all together and start with a tweet from Marco Arment, the co-founder of Tumblr and my favorite podcast app, Overcast. On the day that Musk announced all those store closings, he tweeted, I can never tell if Tesla is about to take over the world or go out of business, which I thought was so appropriate. That, to me, sums up the latest Tesla news. So, Jigger, which is it? Is Tesla any closer to taking over the world or falling into deeper financial problems?
2: Well, look, I think we have to acknowledge that Audi and Jaguar and Porsche and others wouldn't be coming out with these incredibly sexy new electric vehicle offerings if it wasn't for Tesla. So I do think that Tesla already has taken over the world. And you know, for the company to have a market capitalization that's higher than all the US automakers and flirts with being higher than Daimler-Benz on a regular basis is pretty damn impressive. So they're only... Um, the only two companies that are more valuable on a regular basis than Tesla are the Volkswagen Group, uh, who have their own problems right now, and Toyota. So um, so I think, it already, I, I think that we can already say that Tesla has done what it needed to do, which was to force people to take the electrification of transportation, uh, personal transportation, seriously. I think on the other side, though, you know, like, I still have a lot of friends at Tesla. And the project finance group at Tesla was... Within literally hours of negotiating a deal with bondholders that would have had them take stock and cash. And Elon tweeted out that really dumb tweet which then the SEC was coming after them on Wait, which during tweet? that the one that where he talks about which,
0: volume production volume.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, um, so he said so he was barred from making forward-looking statements on Twitter or making projections and he said like, "Oh, we're going to come out with 350,000 to 500,000 Model 3s next year." And federal regulators as part of the agreement said that he wasn't supposed to tweet anything like that. So he got in trouble again, and it caused this whole
2: problem. He had to make a correction with his lawyers. Well, it cost him, It cost him $450 million, is what I'm saying, right? Is that, is that the people on his team had finished the negotiations with the bondholders, and the bondholders walked out of the room when the tweet came out because they knew that the SEC was going to okay. sanction him. And, and so it cost them a quarter of all of their cash because Elon couldn't. Be disciplined about it, right? And so, one of the challenges I see with Tesla is what I saw before, right? I I think they're really brilliant, but I think that that Elon is very erratic, particularly for an automaker, which is why I was happy that he promoted someone I think to like chief operating officer or president, which was great. I forgot his name, but I think he was formerly out of Daimler, Um, so that might be helpful. And there are rumors that. He's going to replace himself as CEO, which would be fascinating and, and a great um, benefit to Tesla, I think.
0: Yeah, well, the Tesla's so wrapped up in Musk, I think there's a good argument to be made that he should stay there. But his behavior has become so erratic, it's leaving a lot of investors concerned. And it, 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 these, these news items bring us to just a really fundamental question, which is, is Tesla a serious company? Is Musk a serious executive? He keeps making these missteps. They make announcements erratically. They roll them back. They confuse employees. They confuse investors. And it's gotten so much worse. And I guess I'm just wondering, like, is this a serious company now?
1: so i think there're two different things to look at one is this cult of personality which you know elon musk and all those articles that make him sound like elizabeth holmes from from theranos like just make him sound dictatorial and secretive and all that so there's the whole issue of him and so you know that's a distraction in, in the, to say the least but then there's the other issue of the business, like what are they doing from a business perspective? And they have a great car, they have a great technology in their energy storage, uh, power wall and power pack. But how are they selling? And if you look at you know the way they're selling their cars has been really good for them. They've been able to do pretty well. But their solar company, they've basically taken everybody off the street who does door-to-door sales. They've taken away any ability for that business to actually make money, taking away sort of the sales aspect, which leads me to the question of like, do they? does he know how to run that side of the business? And I, again, on the solar shingles too, which seems like, I'm not sure how that's going. It seems a little sketchy too. But you know, how is that a business model for him? Or is it just that he's built this great product that everybody wants to buy if they can get it?
0: And that's the big concern, right? They they brought in Sanjay Shah from Amazon to run the energy business. And he could go and develop the best business in the world. And then Elon one day could decide like, sorry, I'm shutting down all the stores or do something that could completely change the the trajectory of the energy business, for example, alongside the car business. And I think that's what concerns a lot of people.
2: Well, look, I I I think it's very obvious that Tesla is a car company, and the energy stuff is not necessarily where they're focusing their efforts. I don't know that Sanjay Shah is doing a great job, frankly. I think, like I've talked to the top salespeople at at Tesla and um, the Solar City side, and you know what they've said to me is that um, they're even being prevented from. Doing in-person conversations and closings with their customers um, that come through referrals, right? I mean that 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 the new practice at Tesla is basically everybody gets closed via call center and online, um, which is literally the dumbest thing I've heard in a very long time. So a lot of the best salespeople are leaving Solar City now, even though they stuck. Uh, with SolarCity, Tesla for a long time. Um, so I look, I, I don't know that Sanjay Shah is doing a great job either. So I don't know that that's the issue. I think the big issue is, is that they're not focused on being best in class in solar. I think they're focused on being best in class in, in you know making low-cost uh, electric vehicles.
0: Right. So, okay, the, the, the energy piece is an interesting one, and they're very clearly still focused on battery storage. And they've got a couple major grid-scale projects that – you know are functioning really well they've been able to develop those quickly they have massive demand for the power wall so battery
2: storage on the energy side is at least still important well but battery storage is critical to their to their ability to load the plant right part of the reason why they do so much battery storage and not solar is because Elon recognizes that the only way that they really have an advantage on the car side is to remain three years ahead of their competitors in the battery side, which they are. I mean, when you looked at the, you know, they don't release their cost numbers very often, but uh, in January, Elon said um, that they were down to $110 a kilowatt hour and that they were approaching $100 a kilowatt hour and that, you know, later this year, early next year, they should be at $100 for the entire pack. Um, if you compare that to the other automakers, they're at 127 on average per kilowatt hour for their pack, which is a huge difference. And so I think for Elon, he recognizes that keeping that Gigafactory completely sold out is what matters and he clearly he clearly says that the battery storage product is usually second fiddle to the the amount of batteries that he needs for the cars. And so I think the reason why there's unusually long wait times for residential buyers of the battery packs is because it goes, you know, Model 3, Model S first, then Australia battery second, and then, you know, residential, what they can get to it.
0: Well, that touches on a really important point. Batteries have always been important because they want volume and it's good for the EV business. Does that mean that they are simply deploying batteries for that reason, or that they actually care about the grid storage side, and that that they're going to develop a more sophisticated business model around grid storage? They were an early player in California's um, self-generation incentive program. They dominated the queue there. They've had some really groundbreaking projects on the grid scale side, but is that is that all part of a master plan to develop a really cool business for grid scale storage or is it just purely ancillary to the EV business? We tried to answer that on the interchange and we didn't come to a firm conclusion.
1: Well, they have a really, really smart person working on their FERC issues. She came out of FERC and uh, I mean, she they are very, very engaged in all of those rulemaking processes on the uh, wholesale market side.
2: Yeah, I don't think this is a, a story, though, that we haven't seen before, right? The same thing's true with First Solar, right? First Solar basically was forced to get into the project business because they didn't have enough demand for their panels. And now that the tariffs have blown up and they have demand for their Panels. They've laid off pretty much everyone in their uh, utility-scale solar division, notwithstanding the really innovative and cool stuff they're doing with APS. And so I I think that both can be true, right? I mean, on the one hand, Tesla can continue to do groundbreaking projects to be able to show their customers— what's possible with battery storage. And on the other hand, they can be very clear about the fact that they're really just an equipment manufacturer and they really want to sell products. And frankly, AES made that transition too, right? AES is not really in the project ownership long-term business anymore. With their deal with Fluence, they're basically now in the equipment and engineering sales group, uh, you know, business with utilities. So
0: over to the Model Y, it's going to get unveiled tonight we're going to get more information on pricing design when it'll get rolled out it'll get probably get rolled out by 2020 and of course tesla will start taking pre orders probably starting tonight a good cash raise for the company a lot of people are uh (laughs) skeptical or cynical and think that the timing of the announcement is just so that tesla can get a bunch of cash through these pre orders again but all the same what do you think about the timing jigger um they just emerged from production hell from the Model 3. By all accounts, they're still in hell. Customers are seeing pretty long delays. Uh, it's taking them a long time to get upgrades, to get their cars fixed. There are dings and dents fr- when they're getting their cars. Why now for the Model Y? And um, should they be focusing on the Model 3 instead?
2: Oh, Steven. Why ask why, why oh why? Look, I, I mean, I think they've got a playbook and they're they're going by their playbook. I I think that it was always smarter to come out with a why. I don't know why they ever did the Model Three ever. I it literally makes no sense to me. They should have come out with the pickup truck and the and the SUV first. Um, I think that would have been a much more profitable play for them. Um, so I'm glad that they're, you know, backfilling and doing the pickup truck and the model Y now. So I I don't, I don't know that there's anything wrong with what they're doing there. Um, I I think the bigger challenge is really, you know, as I've gotten more into the project finance of vehicles, we are doing a lot of electric buses and now we're doing more cars. Um, you know, the bigger challenge I have is that there really is no data for anyone, whether it's the Nissan Leaf or the Bolt or anybody, around how these cars perform for six, seven years. And I don't think Tesla is really serious about figuring out how to satisfy banks around what the residual value of these cars are. They sort of believe that the market will take care of itself. But as someone who's trying to finance a lot of these types of cars for other fleet applications, you know, you, you just ask basic questions around warranties and, you know, how certain things are being dealt with. And, you know, are they making special battery packs or special cars for heavy users, right? Like that that kid who started the uh, L.A. to Las Vegas on the, in a Tesla uh, business, and you know Elon and Tesla's like uh, we're thinking about it, we're learning as we go. So I just think that when it comes to meeting institutional quality, um, I think they're still behind the eight ball. All right, well we'll look out for more
0: Model Y details, maybe assess them in coming weeks. So to our free electrons, Catherine, when you mosey up to a Tesla store, you walk in, and the, the guy who's working there showing off cars meanders over to you with his head down and says, sorry, the stores are closing, sits down in his chair, tells you to sit down and say, what are you obsessing over? I need something to cheer me up. What are you going to do to cheer up that Tesla retail worker?
1: Oh, first of all, I would be wandering into a Toyota store instead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so when I was at Sarah Week, and this does have to do with vehicles, and when I got to see the Formula E race car that uh, ABB has funded, super cool uh, vehicle. So I was at Sarah Week, and there were two main panels back-to-back that I wanted to listen to. One was a conversation with the Undersecretary of the Department of Transportation, the U.S. Department of Transportation. His name is Derek Kahn. He came out of Lyft um, and was actually a Lyft driver and worked for Lyft. And he basically said the administration has put forward a budget that uh, Congress basically ignores the budget request of almost any president. um, But their budget request says we're going to get rid of EV tax credits. So no more electric vehicle credits, uh, which the, the budget can't really do. But that that's you know it's a it's a signal of what they want to do, he said. Um, you know EVs are such a small percentage of the market. I think the demand will go back go down if the tax credits are removed. He said. Um, cafe standards increase cost and decrease safety. We want one national standard, not California to have its own. Um, that the electric grid can't support uh, uh, electric vehicles. So he was really bashing electric vehicles. So he said internal combustion engines are incredibly important. Consumers want them. Then the CEO of ABB got up for his panel, Ulrich Bischoffer, And first he showed a slick video of the Formula E race, which got everybody all excited. And then he said, you know, we're going to EVs. This is the thing. We have to think about the cars, the charging, grid integration, and renewable integration, but renewables and EVs go together. We are taking a huge position. There will be no more internal combustion <laughs> engines left. You know, it's just, he was taking such a strong position. And it was such an amazing juxtaposition of the US government position as it is now versus a Fortune 500 company that is saying this is the future.
0: Well, that's enough to cheer up a despondent Tesla worker. So, Jigger, before you turn around and leave the store and go to Jaguar instead, what are you going to shout over your shoulder to that Tesla worker who's desperately asking for your free electron?
2: Build that wall. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I was following the great work of twenty-eight prominent U.S. scientists and engineers. Um, they were brought together by Purdue University. Um, And they basically said, instead of building a wall, if you built an energy corridor against uh, along the border, um, and, uh, you know, and and built solar farms and wind farms and biomass facilities and, and lots of other things you would, it, it would, it's, it's a really great thought piece. And it's one that I would really just recommend everyone read because it's, it's so good and the southwestern US as many people know is dry and um so they it, they address the energy water nexus as well. Um and so it's it's not easy to put together in a soundbite, but I think the work that these 28 scientists and engineers have put together was really really fascinating and so we should post it into our show notes.
0: I saw you posting about that on the uh the social medias it's uh, it's uh, I saw that interesting map you posted on LinkedIn.
2: Yeah, it was. It's really great. It's um, it 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 really just shows that just that energy border corridor alone could power most of the United States and Mexico. All right, I've got a question for both of you.
0: If you were taking an internship now, would you want college credit or would you want to be paid, Catherine?
1: Cold hard cash.
0: <laughs> what about you, Jigger? I'm all about the Benjamins. <laughs> 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 of course you are. Well, I'd take cash too, but I can remember interning for free uh, in my college days. And I think most people up until modern times in the last couple of years interned for free or for college credit. And there's nothing wrong with college credit, but more and more people are paying their interns and realizing – that uh, we need to get some cold hard cash in these people's hands because they're doing a lot of work for us. And, you know, ever since I made the transition into the audio world where I'm trying to build a company and I'm trying to staff up individual projects, largely with contractors for now, with the hopes of being able to hire some people full time, I've realized just how terribly people in the media world, in the audio world in particular, are treated. There are a lot of big companies with deep pockets who are creating um, pretty expansive jobs or that are only contractual positions or only pay really low wages hourly. And it, it was making this shift uh, when I'm trying to grow PostScript Audio that I realized just how bad some of these practices are. And of course, now a lot of people in radio and in podcasting are adamant about paying their interns. And that's why I brought this up, because there was this big tweet on Twitter... from a guy from Conde Nast who posted this full-time freelancer job that looked like it was a 50-hour, 60-hour-a-week job that didn't get any benefits or anything, and it actually caught the attention of New York regulators. They did go back on Twitter and clarify that it would now be eligible for benefits, but it was an indication of just how screwed up the labor practices are in the media world, and that includes interns as well. So it's just been on my mind this kerfuffle over the tweet Got me thinking about it even more. And I guess I'll bring this back to the cleantech folks and say if you aren't paying your interns, you probably should be. So I hope that those best practices continue to bleed their way through the cleantech industry.
1: Yeah, amen. I uh, I don't think it's limited to the media.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's everywhere. And when I when I tweeted about this, Dustin Mulvaney responded by saying like, uh, this is the whole economy, this is every sector. And it's absolutely true. The gig economy has completely changed the way employers think about their contractors. And as someone who now works on a contractual basis with a lot of different organizations, I I, uh, I know this now firsthand.
2: That's right, Stephen, enough with the labor practice tirade. It's time to go out and pay off a, co- a college campus. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, you can
0: pay us off, bribe us with your love by giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. You know, we've been asking about ratings and reviews for a long time. It can get repetitive, but we thank you because a lot of you are doing it. And it's bumped us up the Apple rankings on business podcasts. And we have hit the main page because of it. And, uh, it's, you know, really helped us drive a lot of new listeners. So thank you for that. It truly does have an impact. Hit us up on Twitter. Catherine's there. Jigger's there. I'm there. The energy gang is there and, uh, react to the show. Give us your ideas. We do often integrate your responses and ideas into how we think about the show topics. Thanks everyone. With Katherine Hamilton and Jiggershaw, I am Stephen Lacey. This is the Energy Gang, a production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio.